This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. This is Mental Health Moments, the podcast dedicated to breaking down barriers and sharing your stories. Brought to you by 105.9 The Region. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Mental Health Moments, hosted by yours truly, Phil McCabe, and brought to you by 105.9 The Region. As always, before we get into the conversation today, I wanted to let you folks know that if you're looking for Discovery, the radio show for podcasters that hosts this program, as well as the new music podcast, Millennial Balance, and some of our amazing clients can be found on all major podcast platforms. It's true. If you listen on Audible, Spotify, Google, Amazon, really wherever you get your podcasts, you can find this amazing radio show and some of our amazing podcasts. It's true. Check it out. Now, if you know me on a personal level, you know that I am downright terrified of conflict. I either get really mad or really sad when presented with conflict. Sometimes I cry. Sometimes I, I throw a fit. Regardless, it's it's bad news bears. But the reason that I bring that up is that today we are going to be talking about the idea of being a people pleaser. What does that mean to be a people pleaser? Well, in my opinion, a people pleaser is someone who puts those around them above themselves, sometimes to a fault. WebMD says a people pleaser is typically someone everyone considers helpful and kind. When you need help with a project or someone to help you study for an exam, they're more than willing to step up. They also say that if you recognize yourself in that description, you may be a people pleaser. Again, that comes to us from WebMD. Now, the definition and example that WebMD just gave us seems harmless by itself. But the really interesting contrast is that the very next sentence of their definition says, and I quote, at some point, constantly making yourself available to others can take an emotional toll. You may find that you neglect your own needs because of your fear of disappointing others when they ask you for help. And that concept is exactly what we're going to be talking about today. At its core, the concept of being helpful to those around you is very much a positive, and I do not want to detract from that very important point. It is very much a good thing, but I do want to highlight the good and the problematic. Let's start with the positives. First and foremost is the idea that being a people pleaser means that you are making others around you happy and likely giving yourself a bit of a positive boost yourself. As well, being the person that others can count on should, in theory, lead to those around you liking you a little bit more and, who knows, you might even like yourself a little bit more. In a way, I believe that being a people pleaser allows you to open yourself up to empathy. As we've discussed already, it solidifies the foundational thought of others before yourself. And in a previous episode, we discussed the idea of being mindful, and people pleasing can, in theory, help in that regard. Now you're asking yourself, how does people pleasing lead to mindfulness? Well, according to HackSpirit.com, the idea is that as a people pleaser, you are aware of the way that others are thinking about you, and because of this, it gives you some insight into the way the outside world sees you, as opposed to the way you think they see you. As I said right out of the gate, I despise conflict. So by being a yes person and perpetually leaning into helping others around me, you can avoid conflict, and that goes for anyone that avoids conflict. If you're leaning into it, if you're being helpful, then there's a very real chance that you're avoiding conflict altogether. All of these points, in my opinion, provide a clear picture that pleasing people has its merits and value for not just the people around you, but for you yourself as well. Like most things in life, there is bad to balance out the good. 
As we've alluded to several times now, being a bona fide people pleaser is no exception. Looking at the flip side of the coin, if you're perpetually helping others and conforming to their needs, you may find that it is harder to be yourself or prioritize your success and happiness over anyone else. As well, when we look at the empathy aspect of this, it's important to be aware if your people-pleasing ways turn into you taking responsibility for the happiness of others, you may end up feeling obligated to think and behave in a certain way for fear of hurting that person you are trying to help. And I believe that kind of thought process can be a very slippery slope. Now, I'm never going to oppose mindfulness. I'll never get in the way of it. But in the context of this conversation, there is a point that we should try and draw the line. And referring back to the content that I uh, got from HackSpirit.com, they point out that it's good to self-reflect and be aware of the outside forces and how they view you and think about you. But if you're turning to these helpful moments for validation and praise, it can be pretty damaging to your mental health long term. And closing things out with the other side of avoiding conflict by people-pleasing, it can be stated loudly for all to hear, or it needs to be stated for all to hear. Generally speaking, no one likes conflict. Other individuals with their own issues will, will actively seek it out, but the general population doesn't like it. But there are drawbacks to the idea of avoiding confrontation at all costs. For instance, if you're so hell-bent on conforming simply to avoid confrontation, then you're setting yourself up to be a victim of your own fear. If you're not going to advocate for yourself, then no one else will. That's not to shout and argue your point, but rather be open to the idea that short-term conflict can lead to long-term gain. At the end of the day, whether or not you're a people-pleaser, I think it falls to the individual. But as I'm one to do with this show, I wanted to highlight that there is definitely ups and downs to each topics that we dissect here. People-pleasing is a part of that. And in the interest of full disclosure, I know my fair share of people-pleasers. I don't think any of them are people-pleasers to a detriment or to a fault. But looking into this topic, it definitely became clear to me anyway that I, I people-please to an extent. As I said earlier in the show, I, I loathe conflict. So in a way, I'm always a people-pleaser if it means that I'm going to avoid any ugly confrontation with the people around me in hopes that it makes them happy with me in hopes that it doesn't turn into a problem. Now, closing out the show today, I wanted to end with a sentiment that I often share on this podcast to keep an open mind. In this case, what I mean is to be aware of how your behavior and the behavior of the people around you is weighing on you or them, whether it's weighing them down or propping them up, so to speak. Is this person helping you because they want to or because they're feeling pressured to avoid upsetting you? Are you caving to the needs of others at the expense of your own mental health? These are all things to consider. These are all things to think about. I guess what I'm trying to say is there is an awful lot of gray area in the world and people-pleasing is no exception. I hate confrontation. It makes me uncomfortable. My brain goes hazy, basing when I get vulnerable. It's a lose-lose situation. Communication. I wish I could just say it straight away. Oh, I hate being this way Learned it from such a young age My needs and wants ain't important anyway When you say something's wrong I just want to make it better Oh, but I've realized That you just wanted me to listen But listen when I see you cry I can't stand what I feel inside Oh, I just want to fix your Guess what they call a people, people, people pleaser 
find everyone else all my life And it's so hard to describe unless you do it too It's a lose-lose situation Communication I wish I could just say it straight away Oh, I hate being this way Learned it from such a young age My needs and wants ain't important anyway Say something's wrong I just wanna make it back talk Oh, but I've realized That you just wanted me to listen But listen when I see you cry I can't stand what I feel inside Oh, I just wanna fix you Guess I'm what they call a people, people, people Please, please, please Guess I'm what they call a people If you or someone you love is struggling with mental health concerns, contact a local agency near you. This has been Mental Health Moments, brought to you by 105.9 The Region. Do you have an idea or a podcast to share? Send it to us here at Discovery, the radio show for podcasters on 105.9 The Region. You're listening to New Music on the Region, an interview-based podcast that showcases new music and provides industry insight. I'm your host, Christina Lavecchia, music director at 105.9 The Region. Somebody's out there somewhere. Bare Naked Ladies and Nikki Noski are artists that we have played right here on 105.9 The Region. And they are featured in a new book called Musicians Under the Radar, 36 Notable Canadian Jewish Performers. Joining me on this episode of New Music on the Region podcast is its author, David Eisenstadt. Hi, David. Thank you for joining me and congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much, Christina. Just delightful to be back with you on The Region. For listeners who don't know, this is our second time chatting. And the first time we spoke, it was about your first book called Under the Radar, 30 Notable Canadian Jewish Musicians. So how did you come to release a second book and why those 36 artists? One of the joys of ultimately publishing the book is that um, getting all sorts of nominations from people who'd say, gee, I read your book or I read a chapter in your book and, you know, uh, have you thought about writing about artist X or artist Y? So uh, I must say, Christina, there's no shortage of notable Canadian Jewish musicians who, again, my view, uh, under the radar. And my writing is from an, an historic, not a music critique perspective. So again, writing facts, 
and, and generating responses from people. I didn't know that. Maureen Forrester, the operatic contralto, she's Jewish, really. Turns out uh, Maureen Forrester married uh, a very well-respected violinist with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, Eugene Cash. She converted to Judaism and, um, in fact, became more Jewish than him. Like you were saying, there were so many artists to choose from. So was it, I guess it was difficult to narrow it down to the 36? The criteria I followed for the second book were essentially the same as the first. Artists had to be obviously Jewish, Canadian, not necessarily Canadian-born, alive or dead, all genres, all genders, individuals or individuals within groups. You'll find uh, in the book the group their bass guitarist, Nick St. Nicholas, Jewish. And you'd say, well, that's not a Jewish name. Well, it turns out he was a child of Holocaust survivors who moved to Canada toward the end of World War II, and his name was Nicholas Kassbaum. But he was bullied as a kid. The family didn't have any money. He wore lederhosen. All the trappings of a youngster who became a teenager in Toronto, but was different from others. He learned to play the guitar by himself. Who knew he'd wind up as part of Steppenwolf? And that's the thing, as you do more research, you find out more about these musicians. And um, as I was looking at your book, I noticed um, another uh, musician and artist that, you know, I wasn't too familiar with before was Ruth Lowe. And she was a Canadian pianist and songwriter. She composed the first Billboard Top 80 song, I'll Never Smile Again. a song that was born of a personal tragedy. She lost her husband, and uh, she kind of kept music as a composer. That's what she was, so much in the forefront to keep busy, to keep her mind off things. And she wound up composing this piece that she had shopped around, but ultimately Frank Sinatra made it a huge, huge hit. And to Ruth Lowe's credit, she's one of the unsung notable Canadian Jewish musicians. Welcome back to the program, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you again for uh, tuning us in here tonight. We're having a lot of fun this evening, don't you think, Paul? No one has more fun than we do. Nobody has more fun on their little TV talk show than we do. Another artist featured in your book is Paul Schaefer. He's a household name. Paul Schaefer, interesting fellow. Uh, Again, you know, back to the criteria for the book. One of the things I was looking at all the time was to find these notable Canadian Jewish musicians, uh, not just from Toronto and Montreal, the major markets. For while he was born in Toronto, grew up in Thunder Bay. He sort of was bitten by the music bug, uh, learned to play, uh, he took piano, learned to play the organ. But um, the experience of seeing Matt King Cole when he was 12 years old in Las Vegas led him to become a performer. And... Um, you know, the, the reality of Paul Schaefer is that he's ubiquitous and 
uh, has written for film. And again, his, probably his most famous gig was, I guess, from 1982 to 93. He was Letterman's musical director, uh, and he was leading a band that was called The World's Most Dangerous Band. <laughs> and uh, he actually composed the theme song as a CBS orchestra leader for um, the Letterman show, which ran from 93 to 2015. How much is enough? How much is enough? How much has it taken to learn I'm mistaken? What is enough? And another artist uh, born in Toronto is Stephen Page, who is a founding member of the Bare Naked Ladies. And as of 2009, Page uh, left the band to pursue a solo career. You know, he, um, I don't think, ever really has recouped his prominence that he had as the frontman for the Bare Naked Ladies. But an interesting fellow, he ran into some um, social difficulties, if you will, and in fact, some people had said, well, gee, why didn't you write about sort of all the negative stuff about Stephen Page? I said, well, I'm not writing puff pieces, but, but this is a book about his musical exploits, his musical career, uh, which continues to this day. And um, I really didn't feel it was my place to be writing uh, expose stuff, behind the scenes uh, stuff that had nothing really to do with his prowess. As, as a singer, as a musician. That was a little sneak peek. There are so many other great Jewish-Canadian artists featured in your book. What's the best way for listeners to get their copy? Easiest way is just to go to Amazon, any of the Amazon sites around the world, amazon.ca, amazon.com. The first book, as you mentioned, is Under the Radar, 30 Notable Canadian Jewish Musicians. The new book, the companion book, if you will, is Musicians Under the Radar, 36 notable Canadian Jewish performers. You can also find David on Twitter at David Eisenstadt. David, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. And before we go, is there a song you would like to hear from one of the musicians featured in your book? Well, so many of them, frankly, are our favorites. But uh, you say Paul Hoffert, anyone who knows him will say he was the the driver behind Lighthouse, but he's so much more. Um, And I think... You've got a tune of his lined up in your uh, collection, Christina. So let's let's give the, the song a play. I do, and I will. Thank you so much, David, for taking the time. Much appreciated. Thanks again for the opportunity. From 1971, here is One Fine Morning by Lighthouse and founding member Paul Hoffert. You're listening to New Music on the Region podcast.
Discovery, the radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 105.9 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.